Um, our first reading is from Exodus, chapter 33, 18 to 34, 9. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain, and do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He said, now, he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. <clears throat> Sorry. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to, the, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they do not escape when they refuse the one who warned them on earth, how much will they how much less will they escape will we escape if we reject the ones who warned from heaven? For indeed our God is a consuming fire. For here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. For a tent was constructed, the first one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence that is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. In it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which there were, were a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of all of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. Thank you, Fifi. It's quite lengthy readings, so thank you very much. I have many skills in life. I can dream big dreams and strategically plan how to make them happen. I can multitask. I can sing along without prompting to most of Britney Spears' discography. And I can bake what I hope is a relatively edible, gluten-free and vegan cake. It's outside, so you can critique it later. One area that I am most definitely not skilled in is map reading. I hate the blasted things. Even on my flipping phone, I have to stand there for ages as I try and figure out which way that little blue dot is facing and which road I need to walk down. Just imagine it. There I am, standing probably with frustrated Steve, and I'm looking at my phone like this and spinning it like this, trying to picture where exactly I am with that blue dot. And you move this way and it kind of does that. And you move that way and it spins round and then it says GPS not found. And I just want to throw the flipping thing in the bin. I do have a keen sense of direction though. And I can usually find my way to and from things after having only done the journey once or twice. However, this is definitely not thanks to any sort of map reading ability. Many a frustrating car journey has occurred because of missed exits and my adamant cries of, it doesn't even have that <clears throat> junction on the map. But I am good at reading signs, whether they're the literal exit in one mile or the signs I set myself as visual cues on journeys I know I need to repeat. Or perhaps those signs in social situations in which I can tell that someone really doesn't want to talk about that particular subject right now. Or even perhaps 
that people are already disengaging with my sermon. The joy of scripture is that it is full of signs, signs of ways to view and interact with the divine in the ever unfolding narrative of creation. It is a collection of books, not of hard facts and concrete answers, but a shifting dialogue between humanity and God, God and humanity, and humanity with itself. A series of signs with very few answers or confirmations that you're doing it right, or whether you actually did miss that exit that you need. Frustratingly, those of the Christian faith, and ironically not, continue to attempt to engage with scripture, not as a series of signs and suggestions, thoughts or ideas, but rather as a map that will point you in the direction of the buried treasure, or at least be certain that you won't go around and around and around that roundabout four or five times whilst you figure out what you're supposed to be doing because we've definitely all done that, haven't we? But to be frank, that quite simply isn't the case. And if we view scripture as the Almighty's answer to Google Maps, then we at best live dogmatic lives rooted in fear. And at worst, presume that what is old is wrong and that only truth can come from the new. If you are one of those sorts that keeps an AA atlas at the back of your car, you'll be certain to make sure that it's not too out of date, as city planners and road builders tend to change things, don't they? Your map will be all but useless if it's from 1998. And that's how we can so often fall prey to viewing scripture. The new is here to replace the old. So the old must be put to one side. As Christians, there's often an unhealthy rhetoric surrounding our relationship with our Jewish siblings, almost like we're the upgraded version and they're stuck in times gone by. Even our language suggests that this is the case. The Old and the New Testament. Let's be honest, we're wired to think that new is better. Or at least that's the narrative that society tells us. New is good. Upgrade your phone today and get this much money off. Buy this new TV and no interest for 12 months. Do this for this. Get this new thing. Replace your old stuff with this new stuff. It's a constant cycle of replacing the old with the new. However, that's certainly not how the first century Jesus viewed the Hebrew scriptures. It was not his intention to cast them aside but to bring something different to them, working with them and through them. Perhaps in Christian speak, we might say to fulfill them. As we continue our roller coaster journey through Hebrews, because we are darting about a little bit, our Jesus of discussion today is the visible Jesus, the physical incarnation of God who lived among his own creation. You'll laugh, and I'm not directly mentioning Christmas, but that is why that time of year has such significance, has such potency and power to me. God with us, 
physically among us, visibly among us, living as and with creation. I get, I've got goosebumps again, just saying those words. The first reading from Hebrews refers to that journey of Christ, to be lower than the angels, a prolific demotion if ever there was one, and to be with us, but for a very short time. However, this wasn't the first time that God had been seen by her creation, which our first reading testifies to. God was not aloof and distant in the times before Jesus, as we sometimes like to imagine, perched on that cloud, not really doing anything, letting life kind of unfold beneath them, but was present and engaged, working through creation and at times physically visible. Moses encountering God so prolifically in the book of Exodus is but one example of this where a created being encounters the divine so powerfully, so extraordinarily, that they are overwhelmed and cannot look at the fullness of what is presented to them. A sign of God's power, glory, and majesty. And so then there is Christ, who took on human flesh and dimmed his light so that we actually might be able to see his face. A face that, as the author of Hebrews points out, that the ancients could not see. And so they lived by faith, faith of a God working through the temple, working through sacrifice, working despite slavery and injustice, working towards the restoration of the kingdom of God, Yet those of first century Palestine needed not to live by faith, at least not those who encountered the earthly Jesus. The signs were no longer wrapped in riddle or coded in language that only the educated could ponder, but rather were physical, present, personal. But both were signs, signs pointing to the restoration of creation, the recreation of God's divine work. Both the temple and Jesus pointed to something. They were signs of a living experience of the being who resides in the very fabric of creation. Physical encounters with the living God who acted then, acts now, and will always act. Karl Barth wrote, in that the sending of Jesus, God's love is known, and therefore God is known. Through the physical, visible experience of Christ, we physically and visibly engage with a love that transcends all others. And it is that love which is our experience of the Creator. Another favorite author of mine, C.S. Lewis, wrote the renowned and often granted church favorite, The Chronicles of Narnia. In these books, the character of Lucy would perhaps be highly favored by the author of Hebrews. It is her constant faith in Aslan the Lion that time and time again leads her and all of Narnia to safety, even when Aslan is not physically present to be seen. Lucy sees signs of his presence, trails that point to where he had trod, and she pursues Aslan until he is visible again. In the book Prince Caspian, 
Her siblings are adamant they must follow one route, Lucy the other, for she has seen Aslan. Just a glimpse, a sign that he has gone another way. And so she follows him through faith that he will become visible again, and he does, as she and her siblings follow that path and allow their faith to guide them. Aslan slowly becomes visible to each one of them in turn. Through faith, the invisible is made visible. Through faith, we see the signs and read them with the truth that they are sharing. And so we get on and we do things that allow us to see Jesus through the outworking of our faith. We follow a Jesus who did things. He turned over tables, shared food with, with those that society had cast out, brought healing to illness, both mental and physical, and ultimately walked the path to the cross. Our faith, perhaps ironically, is built upon a God who did and does. The Scottish Victorian Baptist Oswald Chambers is quoted for saying, trust God and do the next thing. And isn't that what we do as believers here at Bloomsbury? Trusting that God, or that perhaps our understanding of who God is, is present and is doing and is being and so we get on, and we do, and we be. It's actually one of the many things that kept me coming back to Bloomsbury over five years ago now, that here was this delicious community that does things. Our building is very rarely closed. We practice what we preach. Social justice isn't an abstract theory, but rooted in reality. We have rotors upon rotors, upon rotors of volunteers. We give, we teach, we learn, we sing, we cook, we eat, we fix, we play, we listen, we act, we do. We are a church that does things, anything. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, then please forgive me for this brief explanation for those that might not be. The Enneagram refers to the nine different types or styles with each representing a worldview and an archetype that resonates with the way people think, feel, and act in relation to the world, others, and themselves. Like all of these explorations into personality type, it's a helpful tool, if not used prescriptively, or to proactively categorize before really knowing people. It is at its most useful when used as a way to inwardly reflect on ourselves, how we are wired, and why we react to the things the way we do. I'm about to read you the description of what is a type one. Many of you who know me well enough may listen to this description and laugh. And every time, it's as if that giant blue lottery hand from the adverts for the National Lottery about 15 years ago, do you remember the one, the big blue one that just floated around towns and pointed at people? It's like it's found me, is hovering above me with a booming voice, not saying it could be you, but rather, good grief, this is really you, listen. Ones, type ones, 
are conscientious and ethical with a strong sense of right and wrong. They are teachers, crusaders, and advocates for change, always striving to improve things, but afraid of making a mistake. Well organized, orderly, and fastidious, they try to maintain high standards, but can slip into being critical and perfectionistic. Can't even say that word. <laughs> they typically have pro problems with resentment and impatience. At their best, they are wise, discerning, realistic, and noble, whilst they can be morally heroic as well. When at our best, our types don't limit us, but rather we truly excel in those attributes and are often skilled in areas that are clearly linked to them. For example, my nature as someone who is fastidiously tidy can either positively lend itself well to being excellent administratively, which I am, or a bore who goes around tidying up behind people before they finished eating, doing, creating, whatever, which I do. A type one's desire to serve is admirable, and often they're striking leaders who seek transformative change, something I aspire to be. But they can fall prey to martyrdom and believe that it's better that they just get on and do it for fear that whatever it is won't get done or won't be done as well if left to someone else. Guilty. I do heartily commend engaging with the Enneagram online or by getting hold of one of the many books that explore this. We've got a couple in the church to so come and ask about it. It is alarmingly eye-opening. Last week, Steve and I took a five-day break to enjoy some sunshine sea views, and shock horror actually spend some time together. I reasoned that during this five-day break, it would be acceptable to work in the mornings and the evenings, check and respond to emails, etc., that kind of thing. And then if I left my phone in the hotel room, I'd be able to distance myself from a working environment that, thank you, 21st century, follows me everywhere. Listener, this did not work. My personality does not lend itself well to fluid boundaries. In fact, all that happens is that I end up sitting in the sun, rather twitchy, that the emails are pouring into my inbox and that I'm not replying to them immediately. The guilt that I experience, and strangely even boredom, when I'm not working, is harmful to not only myself, but also to my relationships. In my desire to seek justice, do good, be the change I want to see, I can neglect not only those I care about, but also my own health. In my conviction that only I can get the job done, I miss out on collaboration, on community, on compassion. It is then somewhat ironic that as we explore the visible Jesus, I have been prompted to explore what it means to find rest in Christ. After our period of reflection, uh, guided reflection in our service a few weeks ago, Helen approached Simon to share that most unusually for her, she had received a word, which is Christian speak for God speaking to us in some way. And we're not sure how that happens or why it happens, but feeling prompted that God is saying something specific to us in this moment now. And this word was for this community. That word, rest. Woe is me. Rest. Only the weak rest. Stop. Refuel. If I am resting, then I am not doing. 
And if I am not doing, then how will people know that I really mean what I say? Won't they judge me if I don't have the energy to speak out against social injustice on just that one occasion? If it is impossible to always shop ethically, if I accidentally eat an egg that I later discover not to be free-range. <laughs> if I am resting, am I really doing? If I am not really doing, am I trusting in God and doing the next thing? Oswald Chambers. Can I really be following the signs from the temple to Jesus to now if I am stopping to rest? When asked, how are you doing? A favorite response to many is, yeah, good, really busy and tired, but good. And there probably is no exaggeration or deception in their response. They probably are really busy and tired and probably good. But what is alarming is how often we can hold that as a badge of honor. Wouldn't it be strange if someone responded with, actually, I'm feeling really well rested. I've spent a good amount of time with people I love and care for. I'm not overworking myself because I choose to take time to rest. I'm, I'm good. I, personally, would likely walk away and think that they're not working hard enough, to be honest. It's a word I loathe. I don't rest. I can barely sit through a 42-minute episode on Netflix without having to do something at the same time. Write an email, prepare dinner, wipe down a surface for the 900th time that day. And yet, here it is a word, a challenge, a command, rest. Not only a word that I find hard to hear, but one that it seems that Bloomsbury does as well. As I said, it is something that I initially found deeply admirable, the busyness of such a passionate community. Look at these wonderful servants of the Lord, busy being busy, busy being Jesus to the lowly and to the stranger. But it is also something that, at, this, at our present rate, is completely untenable. No longer do we have, waiting in the wings, a generation of dedicated servants who, thanks to a reasonable age of retirement, can gift their time and their energy to staff or voluntary teams. No longer do we have a generation of disciples who work nine to five and have evenings and weekends. No longer do we have an enti entire family units who attend corporate worship together and thus can be family whilst at church with themselves and with others and not have to create time elsewhere for that as well. <coughs> Rest. It is something that we have discussed as deacons and it has undoubtedly come up in conversations in the context of our church meetings and amongst the recent changes to Sunday lunch, chooses at Bloom and with the new formats of our Sunday evening services. Rest. And yet we haven't done it rest and yet i haven't done it rest it implicitly suggests that this is a passive word something that just happens and that does not need to be done but i would suggest that we particularly those who have found themselves part of a progressive and justice-minded community like bloomsbury need to hear that is in fact a big old doing word there is nothing passive in rest we must actively seek it. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. As in, leave what you're doing, get up and move to where I am, and then stop 
not, don't worry, you crack on and I'll come and find you in your next half a minute. Imagine Jesus just swinging by and popping his head over whatever it is you're doing to timidly ask, got a minute? Like a nervous co-worker who senses your stress and frustration and doesn't really know what to do about it. This isn't a suggestion, it is a command from the physical, visible Jesus to all who choose to follow him. Self-care is becoming one of those frequently battered about expressions, often seen in the realms of social media in the form of eating ice cream and binging Netflix, hashtag self-care. And I think that's why many of us struggle with the idea of looking after ourselves. It seems indulgent, even gluttonous, to actually enjoy life, gasp. Not that I think ice cream, vegan for me please, or Netflix, oh hurry back to me Star Trek Discovery, are intrinsically evil. But there is something in the way many of us are wired that tells us that stopping to take rest seriously, to look after ourselves, is weak. And if we are not doing, then who are we being? I believe we have been challenged by God to actively seek rest. We are commanded to do so. It is only in resting that we can heal, refuel, see all that we are doing, and if it is actually working. Grief. I am such a hypocrite. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. What we create and do and strive for now is but a shadow of the restored glory to which we are all partners in the journey towards. Bloomsbury cannot fix the world. You cannot fix the world. I cannot fix the world. And so we are blessed by the visible Jesus who lived but for a short time and yet changed the world. Blessed by the visible Christ, one who by faith we see today in the world at work around us. And then that in looking to that city to come, that one which both the temple and Jesus point to, we must often stop to refuel on the way, as even Jesus himself did. And so, let's hold one another to account, shall we? Let's ensure that rest becomes a doing word that is common in our vocabulary here at Bloomsbury and beyond when we interact with communities further afield. Let us seek the tabernacle, the holy place. Be among the incense, the spirit of God allowed to move amongst with nothing to stop or interrupt her. It is the rest of self-care, of stopping to enjoy the pleasures in life, the things that we enjoy most and the company of those we delight in. But it is also the rest of seeking the divine in all godly glory and stopping in the spirit, actively seeking God in a time of peace or silence or reflection. Which is exactly what we're going to do now. And yes, I am going to find this really quite difficult, as many of you perhaps will. You'll notice on our order of service today that our responsive worship is actually going to be different. We're not going to ask you to actively sing along with the hymn. Rather, Helen and Simon will play and minister to us. And in that time, we're going to seek rest. 
Use this time how you feel most comfortable. It's either a chance to enjoy some music, allow your mind to wander, and physically find a brief moment of rest. Let your shoulders drop. Get as comfortable on these pews as you possibly can. Breathe in and out. And let your body just exist and not do. Or it could be a time when you hold before yourself all that you do, the things you love, the things you do because you're worried no one else will do them, or perhaps do them as good as you think you'll do them. The things you wish you could put down because they no longer give you joy. The things you worry won't happen anymore because it all looks so different now. The things that maybe you need to lay to rest. Stop. Reflect. Just be. Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Amid the chaos and confusion, the demands of our time and attention, we long to hear you call us away for a time of rest and renewal, God. O oh God of grace and mercy, the news and the world around us weighs heavy on our hearts, and we don't even know where to start, how to make an impact. It can feel as though everyone we encounter is a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, fill our hearts with compassion that we might find both the rest that we need so desperately and the strength and courage to do that hard work of mercy, justice and reconciliation. God, we pray for all those in political offices that they might lead with the best interests of the people and the planet in mind. We pray, pray especially for the leaders of Israel and Palestine that they might make steps towards sustainable peace. We pray for those researchers that are seeking to detect a cure for cancer and other diseases and the Australian researchers that seem to have developed a blood test that can detect melanoma. Lord, we pray for all those scientists striving to make this world a better place. And Lord, we ask that you grant them rest. We pray for the police and first responders, for the paramedics, fire teams and public servants. As they serve others in difficult situations, we pray for those battling with the overwhelming wildfires in Sweden. And 
And Lord, we ask you to grant them rest. We pray for all those who labour in nearly unbearable conditions and situations to afford us the comforts that we desire. We pray for all those miners who work in dangerous situations. I think especially of the five miners that died in in a South African copper mine this week. Lord, challenge us in the things that we want and desire and give them rest. We pray for all of those in business leadership or in church leadership or charity leaderships that we may realise the impact our decisions have on families, on the people around us, those under our care. We pray that you will give us the courage to give them rest. We pray for families and parents and those that feel they are unable to support their children. We pray for those that wish to be role models and to support families. And we pray for all children and those especially that are known to us. They will have their needs met. And that you will give them rest. And God, we pray for ourselves. That we might hear and discern your voice, your will for our lives that we may have that courage and strength to do the work of justice, but that we may also find the courage and strength to find peace and actively seek rest, so that we may see you and follow you and rest with you. Amen.